You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high quality, wildcrafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 48, Food Distribution and Communicable Disease. Thank you for joining me for another episode. Sorry I missed this last week. I ended up with some foodborne illness. I'm going to kind of shape this episode around the symptoms and pathologies that happened to me this past, really, almost dating back a month ago now. And I thought it would be a good real life lived experience example for everybody to hear. And we're going to kind of go through some of the pitfalls that our global food system can encounter. We all know that our global distribution allows us great access to all types of different foods year round. And that's amazing. But there are certain things, certain negative things that coincide with that distribution. And one of those is foodborne illness. Foodborne illness or bacterial infections, when you get right down to it, have been killing people since people have been on the planet interacting with food, really since the very beginning. That was how most people ended up dying, was due to infection. Now, a lot of that was not necessarily due to specifically food, but it certainly plays a role in it, especially when you get outside of the realm of antibiotics and being able to rapidly treat infection and or sepsis that sets in. With food being as widely distributed as it is in this day and age, if there's some type of outbreak of pathogenically derived bacteria that gets into the food, it can be very hard to clamp down on it before it's widely distributed. Case in point, there's a huge onion recall right now in over 38 states. 650 people have been hospitalized with salmonella, and that's a pervasive bacteria that, if untreated for certain people in the population, could potentially be deadly. Now, it's increasingly rare that it's deadly because we have such powerful antibiotics and relative access to those drugs to wipe out infection. It used to claim almost 20% of the population if people contracted salmonella poisoning and it turned into salmonella typhi, which is typhoid. That's a large percentage of the population that has perished due to typhoid, which is still very pervasive in our world population. Salmonella typhi can stay in people's bodies for years. Your body will kind of incubate it, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have symptoms related to this bacterial strain, but it's in there, and it comes out through fecal matter, and it can be transmitted between humans and animals, human to human. Basically, wherever fecal matter is containing this bacterial species, there's a potential hazard there. And so whether or not in the food production system at large, it's getting picked up from people, 
not practicing good hygiene, or animals defecating on food crops. We then take those foods, onions, for example, that have this bacterial strain, and we distribute them throughout nations, sometimes across the world. And by doing that, what we're doing is we're taking these once relative pockets of these communicable diseases, like typhoid or whatever it may be, that were kind of contained within borders, and we're now spreading them out to the rest of the world population. So basically, when you have a global food system, you also have global disease. And what that then does is you get different types of replication happening, different strains of bacteria popping up as it intermingles between the world's population. And then you throw on antibiotic resistance, right? And that bacterial strain, that bacterial species gets stronger and more adapted to survive. And that's what we've seen over and over and over again. It's a continuing story. But food is really a central player in that story of spreading pathogenic diseases worldwide. And it's not something we talk about a whole lot. We typically talk about our global food system in a very positive light, but there are some challenges that really do need to be considered. You have challenges not only when growing the food, producing the food in the fields with workers, right? The more hands you get on tomatoes or onions or cucumbers or poultry, the more potential there is for disease, period. And that can happen in the soil, it can happen through handling these raw products. It can happen through distributing them on the trucks. Maybe the semi-trucks weren't cleaned very well, and there's bacterial species that food would be picking up. It can happen in the warehouses where the food is then stored. And then it can happen on your countertop, right? So you have varying levels of potential contamination when you're distributing food. Now, the closer you can get your food from home, the better off typically you're going to be, right? Because it's touched less hands, it's traveled less distances, the margin of error gets drastically reduced, right? Think about growing onions in your backyard. Your risk of something like salmonella poisoning goes way down. And that's typically how we've grown and eaten food for thousands and thousands of years. It was at our back doors or in the wild for that matter. Now, there are always things that pop up. You can't mitigate risk 100%, but with huge global distribution, it can lead to huge communicable disease outbreaks. And if you look at FDA reports, year after year, people are hospitalized with varying types of foodborne illness from bacterial species, whether it's salmonella or listeria or E. coli, right? There's a lot of things that are very pervasive within our world population that we can get through food. So what ended up happening to me was I picked up salmonella from somewhere. It could have been eating out. It could have been onions that I bought from the grocery store. I'm not really sure. And before I get too far into the story, I just want to state that I'm still waiting for a final word on my tests to come back. The lab's taking a little bit of time, I think just due to COVID. So I'm not 100% sure, but my symptoms fit very, very closely to what Salmonella typhi is. Now, with any bacterial infection, it's hard to know for certain because there are a lot of cross symptoms that pop up, but it seems that the puzzle pieces, in my case, fit very nicely. But it's to be determined, and I will definitely keep you guys updated as I get more information. But this is generally how my symptoms developed. I went out to eat. Within a matter of about three hours, I got really bad gastric reflux. 
So I got a lot, I was burping up a ton of acid, um, which never really happens to me. I never have any type of acid reflux or anything like that. So it was pretty highly unusual. My wife actually ended up with some diarrhea, um, which I didn't have. Uh, within about 48 hours, I noticed that there was slight pressure kind of proximal to my appendix. So lower right abdomen. And knowing that the appendix is a reservoir for beneficial bacteria, I figured it was just kind of dumping out some extra bacteria to combat what I had picked up via food. Um, and I knew something wasn't quite right. I kept telling my wife, man, this feels like food poisoning. But I didn't have any major classic symptoms of food poisoning. I didn't have diarrhea. I wasn't vomiting. I didn't have a fever. All I really had was this slight pressure in my lower abdomen. It, there was zero pain. It's just very, very slight pressure, like a little bit of inflammation. Again, didn't think too much of it. I just thought that I would bolster up some of my nutrition and be able to kind of get rid of it. So I did. I turned to some herbal extracts and, you know, things like extra garlic and extra ginger to kind of just help with digestion extra vitamin C to kind of loosen up the stool because what ended up happening is I got a little bit constipated. It wasn't bad. I would miss maybe a day, you know, a 24-hour cycle of passing stool, you know, not highly unusual, you know, it happens to everybody. Again, didn't really think too much of it. Again, wasn't any pain, you know, when I would pass stool, it was easy to pass, right? Like just a tiny bit of pressure on the low abdomen. And this went on for about three weeks, kind of off and on. I could get the inflammation to go down and it would be fine. Um, and then it would kind of pop back up. And I just was monitoring it that whole time. I didn't feel bad, right? Like I had good energy. I was sleeping a lot, which was kind of my only other major symptom. I was sleeping about 10 hours a night, which is pretty unusual for me. And it, that went on for almost a month, but I just figured I needed it. You know, it's been, you know, kind of a hectic year and I just thought maybe I needed more rest. So at any rate, the symptoms kind of continued. And then I ended up getting some stiffness in my neck, right in the sternocleomastoid muscle. So if you kind of feel your neck right next to your trachea there, and you turn your head right or left, you'll feel that main muscle, the sternocleomastoid muscle that runs from the basically the bottom of the ear down to inside the collarbone in your clavicle. So it, it, it attaches essentially the subclavicular muscle. And it got a little stiff. Again, no pain. I just noticed that things were just a little bit stiff. With my background in body work, I knew that it wasn't super uncommon. I was doing quite a bit of massage that month. I was working quite a bit, um, and sometimes things get stiff. So again, I just kind of monitored it. About three weeks in, right after I noticed a little bit of stiffness in my neck, I had two taste buds on the back of my tongue swell up a little bit. And they were right in the area of the tongue in traditional Chinese medicine, which indicates intestinal inflammation. So with those three things at hand, I knew that kind of something was going on. So I further increased my garlic intake, my ginger, my vitamin C, some traditional Chinese herbs, and just thought that I could kind of battle through it. And then about a week and a half ago, I spiked a fever and I was feeling pretty bad. It came on very, very quickly within about a 12-hour window. I woke up feeling pretty good. Neck was pretty stiff, worse it's been. My abdomen symptoms were gone at this point, um, but I ended up getting a fever. So it kind of indicated to me that, uh-oh, I've got some possible infection. So immediately when I got the fever, I got on antibiotics. And within two days of taking antibiotics, I was feeling a lot better. 
My fever broke. I haven't had one since. Stiffness is gone. I did a seven-day course of antibiotics, and it seems that it knocked it out. So whatever I have going on, whether it's salmonella or not, clearly it responded to antibiotics. You know, what's interesting about a foodborne illness is the varying symptoms that it can actually bring up. So while my wife had diarrhea and potentially purged the salmonella from her body, I got constipated, and it seemingly built up in my large intestine, and then made its way up into the neck, up into my lymph, which if you look at the lymph, that's exactly where the lymph nodes run. They run from the glands that you feel when you get a cold or any type of infection, down through the sternocleomastoid, into the subclavicular, into the pec, and then all that kind of drains towards the heart. And that's exactly what I was feeling. That was the kind of clinical symptoms. But mine started at the pec, at the pec minor and kind of into the subclavicular and was traveling kind of upwards, which tells me that it was traveling kind of from the intestine up rather than down from the head or the neck. So clearly there was some type of kind of vertical travel going on. What I didn't realize about typhoid is typhoid tongue is also a very classic clinical marker. So you get, in general, a kind of a white coating which will indicate infection, and then a lot of times you'll get inflammation of the tongue. Now, that happens with a lot of infections, not just salmonella typhi, but it's a pretty good clinical marker. So I had all these symptoms that line up really well with salmonella. I didn't realize at the time, no one realized at the time, that onions being distributed were carrying this very strong strain of salmonella. And so when I found that out, I was able to kind of start putting pieces together. I was already on antibiotics at the time, so I was already doing essentially what anybody could be doing. But even if I would have known what it was immediately, I don't know that I would have done anything different. It could have been that my nutrition and my lifestyle habits kept things at bay to where I didn't have extreme pain or an extreme reaction to this, but it wasn't quite good enough to actually knock out the infection which seems to be pretty likely. You know, like I said, I was able to kind of control the inflammation through diet and lifestyle, but I wasn't actually able to completely cut it off. And so it just slowly built up. Typically, with a typhoid fever, it takes about three weeks to colonize in the gut and then for your body to spike a fever. Generally, it's a pretty quick high fever, which is kind of what I had. And I was able to catch it very early. So I was able to kind of cleave off those symptoms rather quickly with antibiotics. But now I'm in the process of having to rebuild the gut because I've basically napalmed my gut for a week. So, you know, I'm turning to probiotic-rich foods, right? Raw cheese, raw kefir, a lot of yogurt, Saccharomyces supplement. So the foundational bacterial species that I now have lost, I need to repopulate. And that takes months takes months to repopulate a gut. You can wipe it out within a week, but then it's months and months of rebuilding. And that's just something that everybody has to do or that everybody should be doing if they've taken antibiotics. Now, luckily, I haven't been on any type of antibiotics for over probably 15 years. Um, so I had a good foundation and I'd been proactively building the gut for about a decade. And so I imagine that that helps. 
But with foodborne illness, what I'm really getting at is you don't really know. You know, most of the time, it's a very quick kind of 24 to 48 hour hit to your body, and then you can deal with it. But in my case, it was slow, and it took a month to really kind of develop significant symptoms. And so there's variation to how the bacterial species, positive or negative, is going to impact your body. And that's just, you know, complex biological systems. I mean, it just depends on the person. So all that to be said, I wanted to give you guys kind of a real-world account uh, of possible salmonella food poisoning and salmonella typhi at that. That's the thing about the onions. If you have onions in your house that you don't know where they came from, you probably should throw them away. Um, even cooking them isn't going to kill this type of bacteria. It literally finds its way into the cells of the onion, and heat won't destroy it. I mean, my stomach acid didn't even destroy it. So, you know, I would take necessary precautions because these onions get stored for months on end. This is a foodborne illness with onions dating back to August, and it just now got caught in October. I mean, that's a lot of months and thousands of onions distributed across the U.S. So definitely something to be mindful of. And if over 600 people have been hospitalized, it's serious. That's a big food recall. You know, it's one thing to have a handful of hospitalizations, but if you have hundreds of people being hospitalized because of onions, that's an issue. And that's really what I want to touch on. I mean, yes, this potentially affected me directly, but it goes way beyond just my kind of symptoms that I had to deal with and treat. This is an issue of global distribution and one that can potentially spread pretty nasty pathogens around the globe. You know, and it's that's what happens. Again, when you have more human inputs, there are more opportunity for things to go wrong. And so by taking a closer look at where your food is coming from, doing your best to harvest a lot of your own food out of the wild, out of your garden, or at least developing relationships with people that are growing your food nearby will help limit some of that potential exposure. You know, that's a good lesson to learn and definitely something I'm going to take to heart. You know, and again, that's not to say that there isn't risk involved. There's risk involved with everything. But the more you can kind of manage through your own actions, especially foodborne illness, the better off you're potentially going to be. And that really is kind of the main lesson here, is we always look to distribution and to access to food being the answer. And that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with trying to get people food, but it becomes an issue when things aren't handled and practiced in a safe manner that can ensure safe consumption through those various food items, whatever they may be. Because the last thing you want is to be spreading extremely robust strains of pathogens throughout world populations and compounding antibiotic resistance. That's a recipe for disaster, and it's something that needs to be looked at very seriously. And so taking back some sovereignty, taking back some small practices in growing some of your own food or developing relationships with local farms right around you is going to be a very key feature moving ahead into the future because this distribution thing isn't going to get any simpler and it's not going to get easier. There's going to be more human inputs, more human hands, more supply chain hiccups along the way that's going to potentially lead to serious side effects. And 
to some serious ill health outcomes, which is the last thing you want for you and your family. Like, this was not fun to go through. I'd never had a bacterial infection like this. And I don't recommend it. It's not good. It's a bit scary. And nobody should have to go through that if you can help it. You know, one of the really positive things about trying to maintain really good, robust health and nutrition is that if things do come up like this, you can bounce back a lot easier. You know, it's very common that antibiotics, if taken too much, can trigger some type of autoimmune, like rheumatism. So rheumatoid arthritis is a very common side effect of prolonged antibiotics. The less time you can spend on intense therapeutics, the better off you're going to be. So the more you can build up your body nutritionally and through good lifestyle practices, the better you can not only mitigate incoming pathogens, such as what's coming from food, but if you have to get on something, you can recover quickly and you can have the tools to know how to recover. You know, luckily I had language to be able to speak to a lot of these symptoms that was going on to professionals and able to come to a consensus. You know, whereas if you don't really know how to explain symptoms and you don't have the language to explain what's going on in your body, it makes it really hard to get differential diagnosis because it's vague. So understanding some of these concepts about nutrition, about food, about some of the pitfalls can just better set you up. It can give you more insight. It can give you language. You know, if I didn't understand the lymphatic system and how it would react due to some type of an intestinal pathogen or inflammation, it would have been really hard for me to make a good connection. A doctor might have found it, but if you can have language to explain symptoms that are arising, it makes it way easier, and it puts you on a path to healing much faster. Because think about how many things get misdiagnosed due to a person's lack of language or a lack of ability to explain accurately what they're feeling and what's going on. It's a real issue. You know, obviously this was a pretty black and white. I went out to have food. I had some gastric upset. It continued in duration and I developed symptoms. You know, things aren't always that cut and dry, but the fact that I was able to monitor and have language to explain those things is helpful. And again, as we move into the future, these complex agricultural solutions build into complex problems, right? And so the more you can kind of step away from that, the better off you're really going to be. You know, it's one thing to go out occasionally. And again, the risk is there. Restaurants may be cutting corners when it comes to sanitation, or it could just be kind of a fluke. You don't know, and you shouldn't fear that type of thing. But really what I'm getting at is it's not going to get any easier unless you personally take some responsibility for your food and understand where it's coming from. Because the last thing you want is to be continually dosing yourself with potential pathogenic food that's going to cause some major ill health in your life or your family's life. And not to mention, there's also the opportunity for food to become very, very expensive if supply chains start to break down, which we're seeing a bit of, you know. There's been an increase of price in dairy products, in meat, and a lot of things due to a supply chain issue. So money and monetary value is baked into this equation as well, because then you start getting kind of pressure on the supply chain and the producers. And if the producers have to cut corners, right, if they have to hire 
more workers with less oversight, right? Complications can arise from all of that. So there's this snowball effect that can happen. When major supply chains get disrupted, corners often are cut, is really what I'm getting at with this. And so the more you can shore up your own food in your own area, the better off you're going to be all the way around. So again, the closer, the more local you can get your food, a lot of times you're actually going to end up not only saving money, you're going to be able to reduce risk. So really what I want everybody to be thinking about is where is your food coming from? And do you have some ideas and do you have a game plan for a shifting future? You know, I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and grow all their own food tomorrow because that's not realistic. But have you even thought about where your food is coming from? Have you thought about the potential pitfalls of mass distributing food across the globe? Because probably most of you haven't, unless you've been directly affected by some type of food issue, like foodborne illness, for example. I mean, it definitely threw things into perspective for me. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot, but it's accelerated my thinking and accelerated my game plan as much as it possibly can to be able to do what I can personally and with my lifestyle to be that much more prepared for an ever uncertain future. Because we don't know what the future is going to bring. No one does. But if you can control what you're putting in your body with less human inputs, the better off you're going to be in general. Okay, I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, get outside, eat some good, well-balanced food that's free of pathogens, and I will talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear you guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have. 